Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The path to reconciliation is one of listening, learning and growing together. A path that recognises the central place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our past and in our future. It is in that spirit that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay tribute to Elders past, present and future. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want a deeper understanding of the policy issues facing Australia and the world. Policy Forum Pod is produced by the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University, and it's at ANU on Ngunnawal land that I'm sitting today with my friend and colleague Sharon Bessel. My name is Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician here at the Australian National University in the College of Health and Medicine. And it's great to be with you today, Sharon. Anna Greta, it is so good to be with you. And we are actually in the studio today. We've been recording remotely for some years now. So it is very exciting on the odd moment when we are actually in the studio together. The wonderful novelty of being actually able to see each other's faces in real time. Sharon, today we are, of course, continuing our series on reimagining social policy. This week, asking what makes good policy. Over recent episodes, we've reflected quite deeply on what makes bad policy, exemplified, of course, by the robo-debt scheme, which lacked transparency, accountability, oversight, and perhaps most importantly, care and humanity. It harmed those that social policy should serve. We've talked about the principles that should underpin social policy and the issues of design and implementation. Social policy aims to provide for human needs and to meet human rights to livelihoods, employment, education, healthcare and housing. It aims to support people during times when support is most needed, such as unemployment, illness or caring for others. Social policy aims to bring about social justice and both individuals and collective well-being. Social policy impacts on all of us at some time in our life, and for some people it is a lifeline. But how do we decide what, precisely what social policy aims to achieve, whether it's conditional and punitive or inclusive and rights-respecting? How do policymakers decide which policy options to adopt and which to avoid? And how do we know when social policy is achieving its aims and who gets to decide that aim? Our guest today has had direct experience of researching and making social policy, and there's no one better to talk to about some of these issues. We are so delighted to welcome Dr. Andrew Lee. Anna Greta, this is a conversation that I'm really looking forward to because, as you pointed out, Dr. Andrew Lee has had experience in both researching and making social policy. That's a combination that we we don't often have, and so he has a range of insights to bring. Many of our listeners will know that Dr Lee is Assistant Minister for Competition, Charities, Treasury and Employment, and he is the Federal Member for FENA in the ACT. Before entering Federal Parliament, Dr Lee was a Professor of Economics here at the ANU. He holds a PhD in Public Policy from Harvard and has published widely on social and economic issues. 
He is a fellow of the Australian Academy of Social Sciences, and he also runs a lot of marathons. Andrew, it's great to have you with us today. Welcome. Real pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Andrew, you've pointed out that there is often a mountain of research and a mountain of evidence that policymakers can draw on when they're making social policy. So can we begin this conversation today by asking you to talk us through how policymakers should deal with all of that evidence and how they should in practice make policy choices, but also how they do make policy choices in practice? Well, I served on the Global Commission on Evidence to address societal challenges uh, a couple of years ago. And one of the things that they highlighted is that it's important to bring together all of the studies, uh, not be uh, focused on just a single study. So where you can, find a a meta-analysis. Better yet, find a meta-analysis that uh, places greater weight on more rigorous studies. So if you've got a study that's a simple before-after comparison, it probably deserves less weight than a study that's a randomised trial. Uh, That's because in the case of medicine, most sick people eventually get better. Uh, In the case of employment services, most unemployed people eventually find jobs. So a before-after study can overstate the efficacy of of going to the doctor uh, or attending an employment services provider. Andrew, you've thought quite deeply and you've written a lot on how policy choices should be made. You've, as you've just explained, you've identified the hierarchy of evidence that we should use, not just in medical practice, but also in social policy. Could you just talk us through that hierarchy again? You've mentioned that the, the perhaps the observational study at the bottom of the of the, the tree, and that meta analysis at the top, or perhaps there are higher levels of evidence. Um, why do we have these levels of evidence, and how does that then influence the sort of decision making? And perhaps a practical example, if you can think about some of the policy choices that you've been involved in in the last couple of years, where what sort of evidence you've had at your fingertips and with research to, to help inform good, good decision making. Well, in all evaluation, you're trying to understand the counterfactual, what would have happened if the program hadn't been delivered. Uh, Think of this as the sliding doors moment. Uh, How would life be different if this person uh, hadn't been given this educational opportunity or the employment, the services provision, or in the case of medicine, a particular drug? And so if your assumption is that the person would have otherwise continued just as they are, uh, then that's often a flawed assumption for the reasons that I've talked about in the medical and employment services context. So at the bottom of the hierarchy, I would probably put a uh, before-after study. Uh, Next up would be a natural experiment. Uh, Here you might be comparing uh, another community that didn't receive the the treatment uh, and where the pre-treatment trends have been similar. Uh, You might then think about natural experiments uh, such as regression discontinuity where the program is given to people just past a particular cutoff and you might compare people just below and just above the cutoff. Uh, And then a randomised trial where you're tossing a coin and giving the treatment to the people for whom it comes up heads and not to the people for whom it comes up tails. And and that's got the nice feature that the two groups uh, are going to be uh, with a large enough sample, the same on observable and unobservable characteristics. And at the very top, meta-analyses of multiple randomised trials because by chance some trials will end up giving different results from others, put more of them together, and you're more likely to get the right answer. 
So how often do we see this in public policy? I mean, I can think of a myriad of examples in the medical sphere, and no doubt we can talk about that. And I, I, I'm sure many of our listeners will be aware of some of the evidence around the harms of austerity, for example. Um, but that's generally, I think, regarded as a natural experiment. So are there examples of policy decision-making that's been made on the basis of good quality randomised evidence? Well, if you look at uh, the United States uh, job training programs recently, there's a lovely review that John Barron was involved in, which uh, did randomised trials of 10 job training programs, uh, all designed by capable people reading the evidence, very thoughtfully engaging with it. Uh, But only one had a sustained impact on earnings at the six-year mark. Uh, That's a little depressing for program designers, but also a reminder that uh, improving outcomes through job training is hard. The training needs to be applicable, it needs to be taken up, it needs to be valued by employers, and it needs to produce an earnings bump. Uh, The good news was that one program, Year Up, really did seem to produce that. And so the takeaway isn't that job training works or job training doesn't work, but in this case, the particular program, Year Up, uh, had a good positive impact. Uh, One of my favourite Australian examples is the drug court randomised trial conducted in the late 1990s uh, when the Carr government was fighting the heroin epidemic. And it uh, tested whether or not putting people into specialist drug courts produced better outcomes than the traditional criminal justice process. People were randomised into traditional criminal justice process or the drug court and drug rehab and then followed up by looking at who came back and uh, recidivated uh, and also the cost to society. It turned out that the cost to society was uh, much lower for people who went through the drug court. Uh, You didn't need to have a soft heart, uh, even just a hard-headed analysis that looked at the social costs of re-offending would have concluded the drug court was a better deal. So, Andrew, how important is it to build the process of evaluation into policy design? Like, is it possible to retrofit well in your experience or do we really need to be thinking up front about how we're going to monitor this, how we're going to evaluate this? Yeah, such a good question because initially people had been calling for an evaluator general uh, and saying just we've got an auditor general and we need an evaluator general to come along afterwards and make sure things are properly evaluated. Uh, trouble is uh, you, it's easy to go come along afterwards and figure out whether the money was purloined. It's harder to come along afterwards and figure out whether the program impact was as intended. Uh, So good impact analysis starts at the program design level, uh, ideally with allocating people to treatment and control group uh, or thinking about a suitable natural experiment. And it doesn't have to be excluding all the people in the control group. Uh, One of my favourite examples is uh, conditional cash transfers, the so-called Progressa program in Mexico. Just as they're about to roll it out to uh, a couple of hundred villages over a two-year period, they say, wait, why don't we randomise the villages that get it in year one and the villages that get it in year two? And then at the end of year one, the year two villages will be our control group and we can look at one-year outcomes. Turns out the one-year outcomes are really big and conditional cash transfers have now been rolled out across 30 other countries. And in Mexico, a country which had often torn up social programs between administrations, all the new administration did when it came in was change the name of Progresa to Oportunidades, uh, but continued conditional cash transfers because the evidence was so strong. It's interesting too, Andrew, when I hear you talking about this and I think about the the experiments that were done with conditional cash transfers in New York where the evaluations didn't show such positive results, which I guess reminds us the context really matters, that we can't assume that because something's been evaluated positively in one context, it's necessarily going to work in another. 
Absolutely right. Uh, some have argued that this is a, a case to be made against randomised trials, uh, but that point applies equally to uh, a quasi-experiment or even a before-after study. Uh, context matters and you need to have your evaluations carried out in a context which is as, as close as possible to the one where you intend to implement. You also want to think about the people who are delivering the program. So it shouldn't be a surprise that when you deliver uh, early childhood programs uh, to extremely disadvantaged people with highly trained staff, you're going to see a bigger impact than when you deliver to a more advantaged group uh, with less, less well-trained staff. Uh, so thinking about how the actual program will be uh, can be a pretty valuable exercise. We've had a replication crisis roiling the social sciences and so one of the things I'd like to see the Australian Centre for Evaluation do more of uh, is replications of programs that have been run elsewhere. Andrew, you mentioned randomised controlled trials um, or randomised trials and as being kind of high up on the hierarchy of evidence. But of course, those kinds of trials are not without their critics. And, and to some extent, they've been quite controversial. You know, Angus Deaton, Michael Marmot, Neela Kabir have all questioned the approach. And Angus Deacon has by no means dismissed randomised controlled trials and he recognises their values but argues that depending on what we want to discover, why we want to discover it and what we already know, there may be superior pathways of investigation to find out what it is that we need to know. Kate Nayela Kabir has pointed out that randomised controlled trials are often value laden and unable to deal adequately with entrenched power, social construction, structural barriers. Um, and of course, she's making those critiques in the context of gender equity and particularly in, in countries of the global south. So when are randomised trials not appropriate for social policy making and evaluation? You know, are there times when we should think of those ulterior pathways? Yeah, look, I've, I've got a lot of respect for the people you refer to. Uh, Angus Deaton's been very thoughtful on randomised trials and indeed the title for my uh, book on the topic, Randomistas, was drawn from Angus De himself. Uh, I, I do think, though, that uh, the issues of context apply to other forms of evaluation. Uh, there's issues of scale. Sometimes randomised trials uh, aren't able to get at uh, general equilibrium effects in the same way as uh, a natural experiment. Uh, it can often be useful to have a randomised trial and a natural experiment running side by side. Uh, but I don't see randomised trials as uh, having... Uh, different power dynamics from a before-after study uh, if conducted well. Uh, a good randomised trial should engage with those who are part of the trial, uh, those administering and those who are subject in the trial. If you don't do that, then you'll end up with junk results uh, as with some of the early trials of uh, AIDS treatments in which patients uh, in the treatment and control group didn't know which group they were in and so they mixed the chemicals to make sure that everyone got at least half of the good stuff, uh, thereby completely ruining the ability of the scientists to learn about the, uh, the impact of the early drugs, uh, but an inevitable result when you don't engage with patients and explain what's going on. Uh, good randomised trials have consent at their, at their heart uh, and ensure that the patients are part of the, uh, the evidence journey. Andrew, can we go into, into that issue just a little bit more about where the participants kind of fit into that, that evidence? And we hear a lot of discussion around the importance of lived experience and listening to the lived experience of people who have been in particular situations. Where does lived experience fit into randomised trials or natural experiments? Now, is, it, is it about informing people and ensuring there's informed consent and understanding? 
Or can we go further than that and actually understand some of those issues of power, of context, of structural barriers by engaging with people's lived experience? I think there's much more potential through a randomised trial for melding data with theory. Uh, In a natural experiment, you're essentially trying to look and see what variation there is out there in the community. Uh, In a randomised trial, you're able to say, here's our particular theory, and now we're going to design an experiment which will best test our theory. Uh, And in that sense, it should be able to directly assess uh, questions around power relationships, but also the the ideas coming forward. Uh, The best randomised trials aren't the kind of uh, are people more likely to open a letter if it's in a red envelope or a blue envelope? Um, they're testing deep theories, and that's that's where uh, both science and social science is doing some of the most interesting work today. Andrew, some colleagues have have made the point that during COVID we saw um, a natural experiment where we saw an increase in working age benefits through coronavirus supplements. Do you think we can see that experience of COVID as a natural experiment? I mean, it wasn't actually evaluated. There was some evaluation done around it, but it was it was hasty. It was retrofitted often, but but showed some interesting findings. Can we use that as a natural experiment, or is is that too difficult? Well, you can, but it depends which outcome you're looking at. Uh, if your question is, um, does increasing my income make me more likely to go to the shops? then COVID is probably not going to be a very good experiment. If your question is, does increasing my income make me more likely to catch a plane, then COVID is not going to tell you very much. But if it's a question around increased income uh, and uh, something to do, you know, trying to think about outcomes that are not affected by COVID, yeah, you would, you would, need, you would need something which was unaffected by COVID in order to tease apart the effect of income. Uh, I can't immediately bring something to mind, but I'm sure there's uh, there's outcomes you could look at there. I thought there might have been some mental health research that showed that perhaps we were more resilient against the mental health impacts of COVID um, during the period of income support. And so we didn't see the really profound uh, and quite significant adverse mental health impacts until the second year of the pandemic because when that financial support was taken away. And I don't know whether that counts as a natural experiment or not, but that was yeah. an example. Yep. The question is how you tease out the duration of COVID because particularly in state, places that were locked down for quite a while, you did see mental health problems increase. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a it's a great question in terms of what we can learn from natural experiments. And maybe there's things that can be learned across jurisdictions as well from some of those uh, those different impacts across jurisdictions. Or, you know, through a regression discontinuity approach by looking at people who received or didn't, didn't receive support. You know, I spent a lot of my career as an economics professor looking at these uh, natural experiments. I think they can teach us a lot. Uh, but uh, often, if you've got a randomised trial, you're able to set up the evaluation exactly right for answering the question you're uh, you're asking. All right. So maybe we should talk about the Australian Centre for Evaluation, which of course received $10 million uh, that was allocated in over the next four years and for a new centre that is the Australian Centre for Evaluation. You've already mentioned this. Andrew, how is this centre going to work? Uh, how does the centre approach evaluation? What impact would you hope that it has? What kinds of social policies would you like to see from that centre? 
The centre will work cooperatively right across government, uh, engaging with agencies on evaluating programs. Uh, so the employment department might uh, work with researchers from the Australian Centre for Evaluation on how to carry out randomised trials of uh, particular job finding programs. Uh, the Australian Centre for Evaluation will have expertise in terms of access to data, uh, in terms of carrying out the power calculations that will inform the sample size that's needed, uh, and uh, in terms of uh, managing to keep the costs down. Uh, one of the things uh, I'm keen to learn from is the Obama administration's low-cost randomised trials competition in which working with the Arnold Foundation, they showed that you could do randomised trials for tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars and turn results around very quickly. And so we need to get away from this idea that every randomised trial needs to be like the uh, Perry Preschool Early Childhood Trial that cost tens of millions of dollars and took decades. Uh, you can do things uh, quickly and, and particularly the advent of administrative data means that you can do things cheaply. Mm. Very interesting times for social policies. Listeners, we're going to take a very short break and we'll be back in a moment with Andrew Lee. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Listeners, welcome back. We're here with Andrew Lee and we're talking about the place of evidence in policymaking and how we can create better social policy through thinking deeply about evidence. Andrew, I wanted to shift the focus of the conversation just a, a little bit now from the conversation before the break about the, the different types of evidence we could use. And I wanted to ask you about the RoboDebt Royal Commission. The first recommendation of the RoboDebt Royal Commission was that Services Australia, and I think we could extend that to, to all government agencies, should design policies and processes with a primary emphasis on the recipients that they're meant to serve. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how well we're currently doing in terms of responding to recipients and what, if anything, needs to change for that recommendation to be fully achieved. Now, Sharon, I think that's a great question. It's certainly rippled right across governments and uh, uh, I know all of the ministers involved in, in any social services or human services portfolio uh, have been acutely aware of the importance of designing uh, customer-centric programs. Uh, the message has gone out to public servants that if they feel that programs are, are not ethical and that participants are being harmed, they need to, to speak out. Uh, and that uh, that's that's something that needs to apply right across the public service. Uh, RoboDebt wasn't just a failure of program design, it was also a failure of systems that allowed people to speak up when they saw the wrong thing happening. 
Um, so building policies that are uh, engaged with people on the ground is, is important. Uh, we had an interesting initiative out of the last budget that didn't get a lot of airplay, which is working with deeply disadvantaged communities uh, and scaling up uh, alongside philanthropy uh, programs that have been co-designed locally. Uh, so there was a program uh, in Logan on uh, improving the health of uh, new parents, a program in Burnie on improving school participation, a program in Burke on youth offending, uh, all which have come percolating up from the ground and which we think can be scaled up through a combination of government funding and, and private philanthropy. Uh, and that's a very different philosophy from the uh, top-down, uh, computer-driven, take-the-human-out-of-the-system approach which characterised RoboDebt. So in rethinking that approach and, and thinking about what's happening locally, how important is it that social policies are place-based? Do we need to really shift away from kind of a, a national approach to social policy to thinking much more about what works in different locations or in different places? For me, that's an empirical question. Uh, we ought to ha gather the evidence as to how much diversity is optimal in programs. Uh, if you're thinking about... Uh, the medical context, for example, it would be surprising if we said, well, people in Western Australia should be getting uh, a different COVID vaccine from people in New South Wales. Uh, our basic working model is that the physiology of Western Australians and the physiology of people in New South Wales is sufficiently similar that if you think you've got the best drug, you should be rolling it out in both places. Uh, it might, though, turn out that if you were talking about programs to improve Indigenous uh, cultural literacy, uh, that those programs would be best tailored at a local level. Uh, but this is something we should, we should test rather than just coming in with a first principles approach. Mm. So thinking about people, I know, Andrew, in between your work as an MP that you've got a tendency to write some very interesting books. And you have, of course, written about trust and social capital, connection and disconnection in the Australian society, particularly in your book, uh, Reconnected. You've also mapped the decline of connection and social capital in that book. And you've noted that countries that are more equal tend to be more socially cohesive. Very interesting observation. Here in Australia, we are, of course, experiencing a cost of living and a housing crisis and have just come through the global pandemic, which have been difficult times for equality and for social cohesion. So how do you think we're faring along those lines in Australia? We're more equal and more cohesive than many other advanced countries, but on both of those metrics, we've uh, stepped back over the course of the last generation. Uh, Australia, the uh, top 1% share has risen. The number of billionaires in Australia has increased markedly. Uh, the gap between the haves and the have-nots has widened. And the, the other side of the coin is that community life has uh, been under pressure. Fewer Australians volunteer, participate in organised sports, uh, give money to charity uh, or have large networks of friends. Uh, I used to think these were two different problems, but as your question elucidates, uh, I do see them as now as, as strongly uh, intertwined. Uh, they are both me versus we questions. And on both those metrics, Australia has become a little uh, more individualistic and a little bit less community-minded. Um, so I'd like to see us become less of a country of me and more of a country of we, uh, which is not just means that we're healthier and happier, but also that we hold true to Australian traditions. 
Andrew, when we're thinking about those issues of, of cohesiveness, of, of connection, we often draw on ideas of social capital. And within the literature on social capital, there are different ways of defining it, different ways of thinking about it. So Robert Putnam's work tends to talk about networks of trust and reciprocity that bring people together and create the we that, that you're talking about. Pierre Bourdieu uses a very different concept, and he sees social capital as central to the maintenance of structural inequalities and something that's used by those with privilege as a means of advancing their own interests and blocking the interests of others. And I've summarised that quite crudely. But if we were to draw on Bourdieu for just a moment, how do we begin to break down those structural inequalities and move towards equality and social cohesion? And that often seems to me to be more about about more than creating networks. So how do we get to those underlying patterns of discrimination um, or the lack of quality services that people have access to? You know, those, those really structure, deep structural factors. It's a great question. I mean, what I like about Robert Putnam's definition is that it's uh, not value-laden. So just as with uh, physical capital, uh, we think about uh, bridges that can do good or AK-47s that can do ill. Uh, as with uh, human capital, we think about uh, a university education in the humanities that can do good uh, or the skills to make an improvised explosive device that can do ill. And similarly, social capital, I think, is at its most useful when it is defined by the networks rather than by being a network which uh, does ill in the case of Bourdieu or does good in the case of James Coleman's definition, which is another norm-driven definition. Uh, as an economist, I quite like being able to think about physical capital, human capital and social capital as, uh, as, as a full spectrum there. Uh, but in terms of the substance of, of how we engage, I think it's about uh, empowering people and ensuring that uh, more people have a say. Uh, we're about to go into a referendum this year, an Indigenous voice to parliament, uh, and that's fundamentally about empowering a group of people with the oldest continuing link to the, to the land of, of any people on earth, uh, but who have systematically within Australian policymaking uh, been uh, undervalued and not listened to, uh, to enough. Uh, a voice provides practical ways of listening to people in areas like jobs, health and education and can therefore not only deliver better policies but also strengthen the democracy. Andrew, I'd, I'd love to just spend a couple of minutes talking a little bit more about The Voice, if you wouldn't mind. And we've done a, a number of, of episodes over this year um, about the importance of The Voice and, and, and why it matters. Perhaps I could just ask a very preliminary question to start with. You've, you've talked about the potential of The Voice to, to close some of those gaps that we have been trying to close in this country for some decades now. But for you... What is the most important aspect of the voice? Is it about those practical outcomes? Is it is it about more than that? I find it hard to to rank the two purposes of the voice, which is recognition and listening, uh, because it is shocking that we have uh, a peoples whose link to the land goes back at least 60,000 years uh, who aren't properly recognised in our constitution. Um, so to, to leave them out of the constitution leaves a, a hole in the heart of the nation's founding document. Uh, but also to have a, a system which is uh, in, entrenches uh, listening uh, means that we get better policies. You know, uh, businesses do a better job when they listen to their workers. Uh, doctors do a better job when they listen to their patients. 
politicians do a better job when they listen to the people who are most affected by their policies. Uh, so it seems to me a pretty straightforward, practical uh, recommendation that's being put forward, uh, as the 1967 rec- referendum was a, a straightforward, practical proposition. Uh, it's not complicated, uh, much as the opponents are trying to make out that it's so. There is the real potential, and we're beginning to see this emerge for, for a very divisive debate around this issue, which I think is is a tragedy. How do we have this conversation leading into The Voice in a way that fosters social cohesion, that brings us together as the we, as the collective, sort of moving towards a stronger vision for our, for our country? Um, and how do we move away from those really damaging, divisive debates that we're starting to see emerge? I know this is a very difficult question for anyone to answer, but I'd love to hear your reflections on it. Well, first of all, it's to understand that this debate is important for the nation. If not this generation, then which generation? If not now, then when? Uh, We're many years past the Uluru Statement from the Heart. It's not as though it just came down yesterday. And for a a new government to ignore uh, that generous statement from uh, First Nations people uh, would be shocking. You You can't imagine that we would simply set that to one side. Uh, We need to make a a practical case. We need to give examples as to how this has worked. There's a um, South Australian voice to parliament, which uh, whose examples we can draw on. Uh, We'll we'll be talking about the complexion of the of the body that it'll include people who are young and old, uh, rural and uh, urban, uh, and that it will uh, reflect uh, better policies, uh, which ultimately won't just help Indigenous Australians. uh, It'll help all taxpayers because programs will deliver better value for money because they're designed in collaboration with people who are most affected. More moments of hope. Andrew, we're going to bring the conversation back to evidence in policymaking. And I think uh, today's conversation uh, will have many of us thinking about the role and the real benefits that we have from taking an evidence-based approach. But I'd like to just to comment on catastrophic risk. And I, I think the last time I interviewed you, you was on your book uh, that talks about catastrophic risks and how we might respond. And I'm often struck uh, that a phrase from the Royal Commission about unprecedented events and the way in which we might be prepared for them, that unprecedented is not a reason to be unprepared. And yet, how do we make preparation for an unprecedented future using an evidence-based historical view? One of the best ways is to think in terms of insurance. Uh, So none of our houses are likely to burn down today, uh, but it's still a wise thing to take out a home insurance policy for that very small but catastrophic risk because most of us don't have enough money in the bank to pay for our homes to be rebuilt. Uh, And so too, it's uh, not uh, likely that an asteroid will hit the earth next year But we're spending a little bit of money through NASA's wonderfully named Planetary Defence Office uh, in order to track near-Earth objects and make sure that we can uh, push away any objects that come near us. It's been 65 million years since the last big object hit the Earth, but that one did wipe out the dinosaurs and it'd be ideal if we didn't have another uh, object hit like that. Um, so too with uh, natural with disaster disaster risks like pandemics or nuclear war or artificial intelligence gone wrong. We should take an insurance approach, spending a small amount of money in order to reduce the risk of very bad outcomes. Uh, it need not be costlier than the uh, fire insurance policies we have on our home, uh, but uh, very small chances of bad things uh, merit action. 
just as uh, uh, probable things merit action. In economic terms, the expected value is high uh, because you've got uh, a one in six chance of humanity's extinction over the course of the next century, uh, and that means that most of us are, are more likely or are more at threat from catastrophic risk than we are, say, from dying in a car crash. Mm. And it is something that warrants our attention. But an example of perhaps somewhere where evidence-based policy may not give us the answers, I think, is in climate adaptation. And we're watching around the world some of the hottest weeks and days in multiple continents at the same time. And I wonder about how we prepare for unprecedented uh, and how we build into our policy framework, not just the evidence of what's happened historically, but but new ideas. And, and listeners will have heard me talk about imagination and its importance. How, do, how does imagination sit alongside an evidence-based approach? It's absolutely critical. Um, and if you look at the development of the COVID vaccine, for example, it was uh, the imagination of lab scientists followed by uh, evidence-based trials, which tested what, what worked and what didn't. Uh, so too, if we're dealing with hard problems like climate change, we need a lot of imagination and probably a range of solutions, uh, but then to, uh, to go out there and rigorously test them. Uh, you know, it was thought that uh, that solar wouldn't do particularly well at the uh, at the turn of the millennium, uh, but the improvements in the technology of solar cells turned out to be remarkable. So solar's played a much bigger role as it's uh, as as the millennium's gone on. Uh, we may find out too in areas like geoengineering that there's strategies that are workable. Um, I. Uh, I uh, have some trepidation about the field, but I don't have trepidation about doing careful research to try and figure out whether it may sit uh, alongside uh, climate abatement mitigation strategies. Andrew, we, we will need to begin to, to draw this conversation to a close, and it's a conversation I've really enjoyed. We are talking about social policy, and I think it would be remiss to close the conversation bef- without asking you about your thoughts on a wellbeing approach. And of course, we have, you know, the the measuring what matters framework um, just just being released, and so we're starting to see some of the detail of that. We've talked quite a bit on the podcast over the past couple of years about the way in which a wellbeing approach can be transformative. But of course, the word transformative is often used very loosely. I'd love to hear your thoughts on on whether wellbeing gives us a way of really reimagining social policy in ways that produce much better outcomes, give us a different way of thinking? Or do we need to be even bolder and more creative in the way we think about social policy into the medium and long term? I'm no longer an economics professor, but I feel like coming on your podcast lets me uh, pretend that I still am. Go for it. You can be. (laughs) Let me make the case that a wellbeing approach is simply the economic approach. Uh, when we're teaching first-year economics students, we say that economics is about maximising well-being or happiness, or sometimes we call it utility. Uh, we never tell our first-year students that uh, economics is about maximising money. Uh, money is a unit of account. Uh, as my friend Justin Wolfers puts it, uh, economics is no more about maximising money than architecture is about maximising uh, centimetres and metres. Uh, this is a yardstick by which we, uh, we measure Uh, But we need good yardsticks in social policy uh, and to measure uh, uh, health outcomes, uh, to measure happiness outcomes, to measure the social cohesion uh, and to think about the productivity of a society uh, are all important. 
Uh, Bobby Kennedy has that lovely phrase about the uh, limitations of uh, of GDP, uh, and, but uh, that's that's built into good economics. It's only bad economics that thinks that GDP uh, is somehow the uh, the ideal yardstick. Uh, smart economists have recognised for many years the importance of measuring well-being, uh, and we're now implementing that through the budgeting process that Jim Chalmers is leading. I can't help but slip one more question in, Andrew. And you point out that you know, first year economics is not about how do we how do we make money, how do we think about money, how do we maximise profit. It's about welfare and well being. But how did we end up in a situation where where we have been for so long, where GDP is is the dominant measure, where profit is driving so much of what we do, um, and where we really lost focus of well being. Was that about the politics rather than the theory of economics? Was it was it something else? Was it the result of a neoliberal agenda? What do you attribute to that dominance of GDP and a and a narrow way of thinking about how we measure things? So the best defence you can give to the the people that focus on GDP is that it turns out to correlate extraordinarily well with stuff that we deeply care about. So if you look at life expectancy across countries or life satisfaction across countries, the correlation with GDP is going to sit somewhere between 0.5 and 0.8. So GDP in that sense isn't the thing we're trying to measure but it moves quite strongly with the thing we're trying to measure and so in that sense could be could be defended. Uh, but the more data we get and we're living in a, a far more data-rich world, the more incumbent I think it is on us to, to be measuring the right thing. If I go back to the period since I was born in 1972, real per capita incomes have doubled in Australia and life expectancy has increased by a decade. If I could only have one of those two outcomes, I'd pick an extra decade of life rather than a doubling of income. Uh, so we do need to make sure that we're, our well-being metrics are, are capturing the longevity gains that uh, we're seeing uh, as well as the income gains. What a fantastic place to leave, what a conversation that I know we could continue for many hours. Dr Andrew Lee, thank you so much for being on Policy Forum Pod today. Real pleasure. Thank you, Anna Greta. Thanks, Sharon. Really appreciate the conversation. Thanks, Andrew. Anna Greta, I really enjoyed that conversation. Andrew Lee is someone who has thought so deeply about these issues through his research. He's now deeply engaged in policymaking. And so to hear his perspective, I I just, I find fascinating. Um, And he's such an engaging interlocutor. It's always enjoyable to have these conversations with him. There are, of course, such a diverse range of perspectives, of frameworks, of ways of thinking when we think about social policy. And I think over the next couple of weeks, we'll continue to tease out that diversity in order to understand where approaches like randomised controlled trials may serve us really well and where we do need to think about those other methodologies that people like Angus Deaton, like Naila Kabir talk about. Um, And I think that's a conversation or there are a series of conversations that are so important for us to have on this podcast because they go to the heart of what makes good social policy and that diversity of perspectives is so important in informing policymaking. Absolutely. Now, I have to confess that the evidence-based strategy is something that is close to my heart as a practising physician. And uh, at medical school, we're taught a lot about evidence-based medicine. 
And I have to say, over the last couple of years, I've recommended to many medical students that they check out Andrew's book, Randomisters, because in that book, he does a superb job of both describing the importance of using randomised controlled trial data and its pitfalls, the times where we make assumptions around data that, in fact, is not accurate or uh, can be at times harmful. So this importance of understanding where the data comes from and how we use it is central in good decision-making in healthcare. And I think we've heard the reason why that is just as important in public policy. Understanding the framework, the knowledge framework that, in, that informs the design of a particular trial, understanding the paradigm of, under, of knowledge that then informs the structure of the data that's being collected and then the subsequent analysis. All of this is important in healthcare. All of this is important in public policy. Yes, absolutely. And of course, you know, as you know, Anna Greta, and as our listeners know, the work that I do is very much about using participatory methods. It's very much about understanding the lived experience, particularly of children, but of their families and their communities, and then thinking about how we can move that up to identify the common themes and to understand what it is that really matters to people's lives and what it is that creates those structural barriers to people having the lives that they that they wish to lead, as, as the Marches Sim would say, and where systems are failing people. But of course, any methodology has its strengths and its limitations. And so I think, you know, one of the points that Andrew made that is so important is that we always need good research design. We always need good evaluation design. And we need to be really clear and really transparent about what our research can tell us and where its limits are, mm. um, because otherwise we, we, we will go astray. So that design is so important. And it's interesting. I have to reflect that in healthcare, we're seeing a shift towards value-based medicine, uh, to our asking patients who are seeking care what it is that is important for them, and then trying to use an evidence base and as good, as good a quality science as we have access to, to help on an individual or on a community basis, to untangle the nuance of science, to improve and to address the questions that are in front of us clinically. Um, and I think that's, that's a subtle combination of science and imagination, good communication, and, and hopefully at its core, a real community, human-centred type approach. Yeah, I think it's what we would, would sometimes call mixed methods approaches. <laughs> but the way you've described it captures the imagination so much more. But, but you're right, there is no single approach that's going to do everything that we need. So how do we draw on everything from science to imagination and all that falls in between to get the best outcomes in terms of people's lives and well-being? And, and I just... The final point that I'd make, Anna Greta, is one of the things that I, I really like about the approach that Andrew brings is that he does think about those really critically important issues of connectedness, of social cohesion, of social capital. And of course, once we start thinking about those things, it's a very small step to what we so often talk about and what you and I value so much, which is care and caring. Sharon, I suspect you and I could actually reflect on today's episode for quite a long time, which uh, just tells us how much we've enjoyed speaking with Andrew Lee today. Listeners, this podcast is produced by the ANU Crawford School of Public Policy, and we'll leave a link to the publications and sources that we've discussed today on the Crawford's LinkedIn account. If you liked this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with future episodes. And if you're feeling generous, we would love a review. It's the best way for other people to find out about the podcast. 
We love hearing from you, our listeners. We don't always see you, but we know that you're there. And we love it when you reach out to us on Twitter at ANU Crawford or through the Crawford School of Public Policy LinkedIn page. That's all we have time for this week. So from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. And from me, Anna Greta Hunter, we'll see you next week. <laughs>